and turn with me in God's Word to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be reading verses 32 to 42. It's found on page 1172 of the Pew Bible. And we're currently looking at the hours and the lead up to Christ's death on the cross. Uh, we noticed last time how the disciples have promised that they would never leave Jesus, even though Jesus had prophesied that they would all fall away. And in our passage this morning, we see the disciples struggling in their resolve to never leave Jesus, to be committed to Christ. So let's read God's word, Mark chapter 14, and it's verses 32 to 42. Listen, this is God's word. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. When he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Well, who is the strongest person that you know? And when I say strong, I don't mean physical strength. Instead, who is the one who remains strong under pressure? The one that you can rely on. The one that you can turn to when you face difficulty. Uh, who do you know that is most resilient in the face of great trouble? Well, often for children, it is their father. But when they see their dad weak and vulnerable, it can be shocking to children. They've never seen their dad in this way before. Well, the disciples in our passage today, they see Jesus in a completely different light. Jesus is the one who can sleep during a storm, and he can calm it by simply saying a word. He is the one who, in the face of thousands of hungry people, he doesn't panic, but he feeds them. He's not intimidated by the academics of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes. Instead, he puts them back into their own corner. But yet, in the garden, the disciples see Jesus' weakness. Well, what a contrast Jesus is to his disciples. These men have just proclaimed how they are ready to die for Christ. 
They are feeling strong and bold. They promise that they would never leave Jesus. Well, in the garden, they too would face a test. And they failed miserably while Jesus overcame his anguish. And so I want you to notice Jesus experienced great anguish for you to know the Father. And so you are to respond by watching and praying. But remember, Christ was obedient, even unto death, for your salvation. So firstly, in times of trouble, pray to the Father. In times of trouble, pray to the Father. We come to one of the most intense moments in the life of of Christ. Here we see the inner turmoil that Christ was experiencing as he considered the cross. Ferguson writes, and you see this in your bulletin, the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. And so in this passage, we see an insight into Jesus's feelings, the mental anguish that he is facing. Verse 33, he is troubled deeply distressed. Deeply distressed literally means he was astonished. Now, Jesus had prophesied of the cross. He knew he was going to die this horrific death. But why is he in such distress? Well, as the hour approaches, he now considers the enormity of what, he would, what it would mean for him. Hughes writes, as he looked into the cup that he must drink that night, he was astonished and overcome with horror. No human being, however great his or her anguish, has ever experienced anything like this. Verse 34, we read, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Well, he was about to die. This doesn't make sense. Well, not unless the suffering that Jesus was going to go through was worse than death, and it was. We read, he was troubled. This literally means to be overcome with horror. I'm sure if you've ever seen something horrific, maybe it's a car accident, it leaves a mental image in your mind that you can't stop thinking about. And you shudder trying not to imagine the pain involved. Freddie Flintoff, an England cricketer, who's also the presenter of BBC's Top Gear, had a serious car accident, and he suffered serious facial injuries that affected his jaw. And so horrific was this accident that a number of the crew who were working on that day on the filming are off work now, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And they've been prevented from returning to work because of the horror that they saw in that crash. Well, it's that sense of horror that Christ is now feeling. It leaves him feeling nauseous, overwhelmed, facing, fe feeling that he is close to death. And Jesus' trouble wasn't simply his death on the cross. It would be what would happen to him on the cross. He would be forsaken by the Father. Ferguson writes, he felt he could not live. Indeed, that his life was not worth living without the consciousness of his Father's love for him. So Jesus' greatest fear is the reality that the Father would forsake him. But we also see that in his fear, he turns to his Father in prayer. Notice how he addresses God the Father. He says, Abba. And Abba is a personal 
an intimate way to address God. He also prays saying, all things are possible for you. So he believes in the power of God. We say the same thing when we say our heavenly father. Heavenly speaks of God as being the one who is in heaven, denoting his power and his sovereignty. But we also say father. And that speaks of the intimacy that we enjoy with God. That is how we are to approach God, recognizing his great power, but also recognizing that he's not a cold, remote God, but he is the one who loves his children and loves to give good gifts to his children. And we see at the end of our passage in this prayer that Jesus is strengthened. He is resolved to go to the cross. In Luke's gospel, we read that God answered Jesus' prayers by the means of an angel who ministered to him and strengthened him. Now, this is not the only time that Jesus prays. We can read of three occasions in Mark's gospel where Jesus prayed. Each time, Jesus was strengthened and encouraged. And so it's important to understand who Jesus is. That he is a man of prayer, a man dependent on the Father. Hughes writes, without the vibrant discipline of prayer, Jesus, the Son of God, would never have made it. If the actual Son of God needed a life of dependent prayer to fulfill God's will, how much more do we adopted sons and daughters need it? Well, what a challenge that is to each one of us this morning. When you face difficulties or trials, how do you respond? Do you become angry or do you complain? Do you grumble or do you become depressed? Do you grow anxious or so quick to respond in these ways? But instead, go to God in prayer. Look to him for strength. And so prayer is a discipline. It takes work. It takes effort. As Jesus was faithful in prayer, you too must be faithful in going to God in prayer. Yes, in times of trouble, but you're to do so every day. Always recognizing that you are dependent on God. Always expressing your gratitude to God for all that you have comes from him. So in times of trouble, pray to the Father. But secondly, notice Christ faces the cup of God's wrath in your place. Christ faces the cup of God's wrath in your place. Verse 36, we read that Jesus prays that God would take this cup away from him. Well, what is the cup that Jesus must drink from? Why was Jesus facing this suffering? Why would the Father forsake him? Well, the cup is an Old Testament phrase pointing to the wrath of God, which he poured out on his disobedient people. We can read of it in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, where God curses his people and forces them to drink from the cup, to drain it down to the dregs. And we read of a similar prophecy in Ezekiel. I read this in your bulletin, Ezekiel 23. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will put her cup in your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and the wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn, held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts. 
For I have spoken, says the Lord. Here, God poured out his cup of wrath on his people, on Judah, just like how he poured it on Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel. And the result would be that God would allow Babylon to invade and to destroy Jerusalem. No longer would God be present in the city. And the judgment that happened to God's people in the Old Testament is necessary again for God's people because you and I, we continue in sin. We deserve God's wrath. And the cup of judgment is what you and I should be drinking. But God's will was that Christ would drink the cup in your place, right down to his dregs. But now Jesus asks to be relieved of this cup. That's because this cup is worse than even the pain of the crucifixion. Why such anguish? Well, Christ is perfect. He's holy. And he now considers the horrors of the cross. He sees the sins, your sins, that he would now have to pay the price for. For the murders, for the evil, for the jealousy, for the oppression, for the blasphemy, for the gossip, for the disobedience for the hurt and the pain. This vile content is what he must drink. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But then in drinking this cup, he would no longer know the presence of his father with him. McCoy says the most unbearable thought to the spotless son of God was dying unto the wrath of his father, becoming all that is hideous to his father's righteousness. And so the result of drinking from this cup of judgment was alienation from God. Paul speaks of this as being cursed. In Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Christ faces this prospect of the wrath of God in your place and the resulting abandonment from the Father. He drank from the cup so you wouldn't have to. He is our substitute. He takes your place. And so Gethsemane helps us see the weight of suffering that Christ was under. And Gethsemane actually means oil press. It's a walled garden on the side of the Mount of Olives, and it contained an oil press or olive press to produce olive oil. And so in Luke's gospel, we actually read that Jesus sweated blood in the garden. He felt the press of what he would do, bearing our sin and facing God's wrath. Well, this is what our sin deserves. God's not being extreme here. He's not lost control. Wilmer says God's wrath is his perfect, pure, just, steady, and unending hostility to sin. His wrath means condemnation, eternal punishment, deadly separation, and outer darkness. All who stand in rebellion against this holy God are destined to face this wrath, to drink this cup. No wonder Christ did not want to drink from it. But the reality is that if Christ did not drink from it, we would have to drink from it. And all who are not trusting in Christ's work, his substitutionary work, they will be drinking from this cup of wrath. 
And we see a picture of this in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, verse 9, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now Christ has drank the cup of wrath, so you don't have to. Well, thirdly, consider Christ submitted to the Father's will to bring you to life. So what's interesting in Jesus' prayer is him asking the Father to remove this cup. He's asking if his death could be avoided. Jesus is truly man, as well as being truly God. And so in his fear of approaching the cross, he sought another way to accomplish his mission. He wanted to escape the cross, but more importantly, he wants to fulfill his father's will, his father's desires. And that helps us see that it's not wrong to ask God to remove something that he is allowing in your life. You could be going through various difficulties. It could be illness. It could be family struggles. It could be work pressures. It's not wrong to ask God to change your circumstances. But what is more important is you obeying God's will for your life. And that is obvious, that Jesus' first and foremost desire was to obey the will of his Father. John six thirty eight, we read, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was facing real temptation here, just like at the start of his ministry in the wilderness when Satan tempted him to avoid the cross. Again, here in the garden, he must fight off temptation. Now, Mark doesn't record the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness in any great detail, but he does write of this agonizing temptation that Jesus faced in the garden not to go to the cross. Now, this is, this is where it's hard to understand, since Jesus is God. Can there even be this battle? But you are to see the will of his human nature struggling with the divine will. And so Jesus' humanity is on clear display here in the garden. Wilmshurst says it is another mystery, the greatest mystery of them all, that in Christ God has become a man and still remained God, and that here, in sorrow and distress, almost crushed by the horror that is ahead, the human will can struggle with the will of God within this one person of the Christ and yet remain sinless. And so it was his father's will for him to drink this cup of wrath. And so Jesus submitted to the father. And so Jesus wrestles with the will of God, but he goes willingly to drink the cup. And in doing so, he defeats sin and death. And therefore, we see just how crucial a fight this was in the garden that Jesus fought. And it is a reminder of another fight in another garden, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve also faced temptation not to do the Father's will. But they did not submit to God, and instead they rebelled against God's will. And the result was they brought death into this world, while Christ in submitting to the Father's will, he brought life to you and to me. 
Well, fourthly, you're to respond by watching and praying. So in the garden, it wasn't only Jesus who was facing temptation. We also see the disciples were present. And Jesus picks Peter, James, and John to accompany him as he prayed to the Father. And we see that the disciples were also in a battle, a battle to stay awake. I wonder, has that ever happened to you? Maybe when you're driving, you struggle to stay awake, you open the windows, you turn up the music. It's an awful feeling trying to stay awake. Or maybe you're up in the middle of the night with a fussy baby and the tiredness overcomes you and you desperately want to sleep. Well, that's how these disciples felt here. And yet these disciples had a front row seat to how to respond to temptation in the correct way. Jesus was teaching them a lesson from the temptation that he faced. He made himself vulnerable. They were seeing Jesus in his agony. He even told them of his inner turmoil. He had already prophesied how they would all fall away. Well, they responded by saying they would not do it. Well, Jesus is telling them then that they need to pray. He's not asking them to pray for him. He's not relying on them. No, they are to pray for themselves. If they really want not to fall away, well, they need to ask God for help. They need to keep watch so that they are ready. But they cannot do it. They fail. They fall asleep. They are not ready. They are weak. They could not summon the strength or the resolve to stay awake. And three times Jesus urged them. Each time they failed. Three times, like the three temptations that Jesus faced by the devil in the wilderness. But unlike Jesus not submitting to the temptation, the disciples did. They were not strong. And so it's no surprise when Jesus was arrested that they did flee. Those bold words that they would not run away proved to be empty words. These men who were so confident in themselves that they could do anything for Christ. But it was all pride. They were weak. These men finally did learn to pray. We can see that later on. They learned not to rely on themselves, but on God. That's evident in Peter and James's lives when they died martyrs' deaths. John, as he endured to the end. They also learned to say, not what I will, but what you will. And you too have to be ready to say these words. These are not easy words. There are times when you also will be tempted, when you will want to do your own will. But you have to look to God and to his word and say, not my will, but your will be done. You will face spiritual battles just like the disciples. And you will fail if you're relying on yourself. Wilmer says if we try to face the spiritual battles of this life in our own strength, we too will be sunk. Our human pride and human weakness will lead us to defeat, just as they did for the disciples. No, you must watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. And this is a discipline, it takes effort. But the outcome will be that when temptation comes, you're not surprised by it. You're ready for it. And so you know how to respond. You look to God for strength. 
And so you pray to him that he enables you to submit to his will. Well, finally, notice your flesh is weak, but give thanks that Christ was obedient even unto death. Now, it would be wrong for us to leave this passage thinking that we are to pray Gethsemane prayers, that you are now under pressure to attain this level of commitment. That's impossible. Jesus' death was unique, and he knew it. He saw what was ahead of him. He saw the separation between him and the Father, and he's shocked by it. But he also saw that God's wrath was the only response to sin. And by him taking God's wrath, he saw God's love for his people. For this is how God would rescue us. So Jesus endured the cross because he endured the garden. And so in prayer, he resolved to be obedient to the Father's will. Only Jesus could be obedient to death. That's why only Jesus is your Savior. So while Jesus does give us an example here, the reality is we cannot follow it. How the disciples respond is how you and I would respond. We are weak. Our faith is not strong. We may try. We may have good intentions. But that's all they are. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And so you cannot do it. And that's evident by the fact that you and I, we continue to struggle with sin every day. While you are to struggle with sin, you are to put sin to death. This should not lead to you trusting in your own ability. Your confidence is to be found only in Christ. And that is true here in the garden. Jesus is ministering to us. Hebrews 5, the verses I read in the call to worship, helps us see what Jesus was doing in the garden. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus is your high priest. He is interceding for you on your behalf for you to know salvation. His prayers are acceptable. Because of his perfect sacrifice, he obeyed God even unto death. And as a result of his work, he is the author of your salvation. Scrivener puts it well. That's the meaning of this story. It's the meaning of the scriptures. I am not the center. Christ is. I am not the faithful, obedient one. Christ is. My hope is not my self-offering to God. My hope is Christ's self-offering to God. And while I sleep and feel and flee and even deny him, Christ is praying for me. Jesus Christ, he prayed in the garden for you, and in doing so, he resolved to be obedient even unto death. And he continues praying for you so you can be assured of your salvation. So in your weakness, when you look at your lack of obedience, when you've fallen into the same sin Again, remember your confidence is not in yourself. Otherwise, you are right to be despondent. No, your confidence is in Christ. He is the obedient one. And so he is your salvation. And so although he looks weak in the garden, he is actually strong. 
for he is the victorious one. So Jesus experienced great anguish for you to know the Father. And so you're to respond by watching and praying. But remember, Christ alone was obedient, even unto death, for your salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider Jesus in the garden, we see the anguish that he was in. The horror of what lay ahead of him was clear for him to see. And yet we thank you that Jesus did go through with it. He did take our sin on himself and received its judgment and curse, being separated from you to pay the price for our sin. And so help us, Lord, when we are tested to watch and pray, to depend on you for strength. But help us always to remember that we are dependent on you for our salvation. And so we give thanks for Christ's obedience, even unto death. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, please turn to Psalm 143d. Psalm 143d, this psalmist here is crying out to God. He trusts God, he relies upon God, and stands the sixth notice. O God, deliver me from all my enemies. Teach me your will. I hide in you. You truly are my God. May your good spirit lead directing me on level ground. And so here we see the psalmist seeking to do God's will. And let that be true for each of you. Cry out to God. You are dependent on him and seek to do his will. But notice ultimately the psalmist believes his salvation is secure in God. And we see why in stanza seven. For your name's sake, O Lord, save me, preserve my life, and free my soul in righteousness. True to your covenant love, Fully consume my foes, because I servant am to you. God is true to his covenant love. He has promised to save us, and he has saved us through Jesus Christ. So let's respond by singing these words, Psalm 143d.
After the benediction, we'll sing the doxology in Psalm 134b. So receive God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.